Our scripture for this morning is Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In case you haven't figured out, I'm diabetic, and I'm still trying to figure out uh, some new insulin, so... When I'm unsure as my blood sugar, some of you know what I'm talking about, um, then it's probably a good idea to drink juice before you preach. Good morning. The Lord be with you. Thank you. My name is Brad Julin, and if you don't know, I'm the interim pastor here at Pacific Community and glad to be with you. Uh, this is my second message. And, um, you know, honestly, uh, my, my purpose in these first two messages is a lot of it is just that you get used to me. <laughs> Does that make sense? And, uh, but also to encourage you. 
So this morning, um, we are looking at the book of Jonah, and particularly, I'm, I guess I'm looking at the whole book, but particularly we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 2. But Jonah chapter 2 only makes sense when you have chapter 1 in mind. So, the book of Jonah, the literary style of Jonah. Um, Jonah is a challenging book for some of us. It's, it's not like the New Testament letters, uh, the letters of Paul and things. Um, those letters tell us truths about God and goodness, and then they tell us how to apply it to our lives. Um, the literary style of Jonah is, the, the phrase that's used is a prophetic narrative. Now, uh, that may be saying it to, in a complex way. Narrative just means it's a story. It's written in a story style. It's not a a list of facts or a logical argument. It is a sequential telling of what happened. But why do we call it a prophetic narrative? Um, We usually think of something being prophetic because it either uh, predicts or proclaims something. And there is an element of prediction uh, in the book of Jonah. Jesus uh, said to people, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now... Someone greater than Jonah is here. So Jonah's experience foreshadowed a greater resurrection and a greater messenger. But prediction is not really the primary purpose of the book. And it isn't why we call it a prophetic narrative. And while Jonah does have an eight-word message for the city of Nineveh, it's, uh, it's not really the message of the book. So if Jonah is not about prediction or proclamation, why do we call it a prophetic narrative, a prophetic story? And the answer, I think, is this. It's a God story. It's a God story. Um, I'm not sure whether most of us are aware of this, but um, in the Old Testament there are 12 books that we call the historical books. Um, But the Jews did not call those 12 books historical books. They called them the former prophets and the latter prophets. Now why would that be? That seems strange uh, because these books tell us the history of Israel, the history of the kings of Israel and what happened. But the Jews considered them prophecy. So how are people and events in history prophecy? Well they are prophetic because they do proclaim a message. They tell us about who God is and what he is like by what he did, not just by what he said. Does that make sense? Um, If I say to my wife, I love you, that's good. But you know, if I take her out to dinner, then she knows I love her. Does that make sense? And in, in scripture, we are seeing Uh, God revealed by what he does, not just by what he says. And so the events of the lives of Saul and Samuel and David and the rest of the kings of Israel are not primarily about Saul and David. 
and Samuel. They're about God and what he is like and what he is doing in this world. A prophetic narrative is a God story. While humans are seen in the foreground, we are missing the point if we reduce the message to you should be like this person or you shouldn't be like that person. The primary actor throughout Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and Nehemiah is God and the plot is about what he is doing. Interestingly, as you look at those books, there's often what I would call summary statements or interpretive statements in the book that tell us what's really going on in the midst of all these human events. So, for example, the book of 2 Chronicles starts in this way. Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over the kingdom, for the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. That is a critical statement that tells us what's really going on here. We are tempted to read the story of Solomon and be wowed by his wealth and his wisdom and how he builds the temple and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. But we need to understand that the things that were happening here were not because Solomon was so great. It was because God was making him exceedingly great. It's a God story. Why was God doing that with Solomon? Because God had spoken ahead of time prophetically about the son of David who would come. And he would be the one to build the temple. And it was a foreshadowing of the coming of a greater son of David who would build a temple filled with his Holy Spirit out of living stones. That's us. And his kingdom will never end. Well, Jonah is pretty much the same kind of thing, friends. It is a prophetic narrative. It's a God story. It is, it is not nearly so much the story of a big moment in Jonah's life as it is the story of God and what he is like and what he is up to in the world. And that's what we mean when we call it a prophetic narrative. And that's important because it changes our focus in the story from uh, what did Jonah do that, uh, that we should or shouldn't do to what is God up to? What is, how is God revealed to us in this story? What correction or encouragement can we take from it? We need to be paying special attention to what God is doing in the story. So let's do that. Jonah chapter 1. How does the story begin? The story begins when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and God sends Jonah to Nineveh to speak a message of warning and judgment. God is taking the initiative. We should just note that God's purpose in this warning was not to vent his anger at their behavior, but to save them. And Jonah knew this warning was about God's mercy and grace to the people of Nineveh, and we find out later that's the primary reason for what he does next. He runs away from God and his calling. And then we're told that God sent a great wind on the sea. 
Jonah has tried to escape on a ship to Tarshish. And God, again, is the major actor in what happening, what's happening. He sends a great wind on the sea. And the human response to this divinely appointed crisis is first to pray and then to come up with a human solution uh, to the problem by trying to lighten the ship. At a certain point, they seem to recognize that things are getting worse. And they assume there's a reason that everything happens. So somebody must have ticked off their particular god or gods. I think we can probably assume that casting lots to figure out who's to blame for the problems in our lives is not the central message of the book. But sure enough, the lot falls to Jonah. And the implication is that this was not simply the luck of the draw. And then, as if he were a thief caught red-handed, he tells him, yeah, it's me. The only solution is to toss me overboard. But not wanting to make things worse with the gods by killing someone to save their own skins, the sailors go back to rowing to try one more time to save themselves. But when that fails, they have a moment of divine clarity. They recognize that God is the one in control of the circumstances, saying, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life, for killing an innocent man, for you have done what you have pleased. You have done as you have pleased. Friends, even the unbelievers in this story recognize that this is about what God is doing. I think we need to be honest. It's very difficult in tragic or evil, uh, evil circumstances um, to tell whether it's happening because of God or Satan or evil people or the weather or our own stupidity. But their cry is recorded here to underline that this event is about what God is up to. And with that, the sailors give Jonah the old heave-ho and over you go. And the speed with which the winds die off and the raging sea becomes calm is yet another hint that God is directing these events. But of course that didn't help Jonah. I suspect he did not know how to swim and he sinks beneath the waves as the chapter ends and God shows up by sending a fish to swallow Jonah. And it's at this point that we are about to discover that there's something missing in the story. Jonah chapter 2. When we come to this part of the book, our tendency is to imagine ourselves in Jonah's place. We've been living the story with him. There you are in this terrible situation, half drowned, maybe just waking up. It's dark and smelly and gooey and the walls are moving. You realize you've probably been swallowed by something very, very big. You have run away from something you knew God had told you to do, and now you realize that that impromptu plan that you had for maintaining control over your life has been a rather smashing failure. What do you do? Well, if you are like me, you come to the prayer of Jonah expecting repentance, remorse, pleading, whining, 
groveling for help, lots of groveling. And then we read these words. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you heard my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea. And the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet, I will look again to your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me, barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you. My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. We need to stop and think for a second here. Wait a minute. He is speaking of deliverance here in the past tense. But he's still in the fish's stomach. Did you catch that? He's still in the fish's stomach. This is not a prayer of repentance or a cry for deliverance. This is primarily a prayer of praise. The missing part of the story is the praying for help that he already did in the water with seaweed around his head. He's telling us about that prayer here as he praises God for answering it in this prayer. But the prayer that is recorded here is not the prayer for help. This prayer is the story of his changed perspective while still in the belly of the fish. Does that make sense? Hebrews 11 says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not yet see. And for Jonah, deliverance was already happening. You know, we think of being inside the belly of a big fish as scary and yucky, but that's not the perspective of Jonah. When you can't swim and you've gasped your last breath and sunk beneath the waves, waking up inside a fish with air to breathe and not being chewed on is not just lucky, it's miraculous. It's grace graffiti. It is stark evidence that the creator of heaven and earth of birds and animals, and yes, the fish of the sea is looking out for you. Jonah's perspective in the belly of the fish is not of fear, but of someone who has already been saved from certain death and is just waiting for the rest of the miracle to happen. If God has gone to that much work to keep him alive, he probably has a plan to get him the rest of the way back to land too. Jonah has begun to recognize that he is part of a prophetic narrative 
friends. He's part of a God story. God is up to something far bigger than just Jonah. It's not just about him. I don't know whether you've noticed it or not, but answers to prayer frequently do not look the way we imagine. Um, we are hoping God will send a rescue boat or a Coast Guard helicopter, not a big fish. And God seems to delight in the unexpected. But you know what, friends? Often the first miracle God performs is to change our perspective before he changes our circumstances. There are things that he wants to deepen in us that we, we can learn no other way. Years ago, I was pastor of a church for uh, 16 and a half years, and then it all went sideways. My wife and family were deeply hurt. And, and I think it, it affected my reputation because I was unemployed for a period of time. And I've learned that that type of experience is not unusual for pastors. But I was praying, and part of the prayer, honestly, was for God to vindicate me. Well, whatever vindication there was came only in private conversations. There was no Jordan River moment when people saw the Spirit of God descending on me and a voice from heaven saying, this is my servant with whom I am well pleased. And one day I found myself the part-time pastor of a tiny church in another denomination with 25 people in attendance and the youth group was everyone under 80. <laughs> this was not the answer to prayer or the vindication I had in mind. In many ways, it was a belly of the fish experience. But remember, the prophetic narrative of Jonah's journey and of ours is much more about what God is like and how great he is and what he is doing in the world than it is about us. There was a God story being written. My name might be on the title of the book. But these events were being directed by God. And Hebrews 12 tells us that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he does so for our good, even though it doesn't feel good. Honestly, there was a lot of humbling God needed to do in my life, friends. One thing I had to learn was that I truly didn't know how much I didn't know. That period of loss was God's severe mercy in my life. And frankly, it took a lot longer than three days in the belly of the fish for him to change my superficial and self-centered perspective. I wonder where you are today. What is your situation? Are you sinking in the waves? 
Are you holding your nose in the belly of some monstrous situation? I wonder what prophetic narrative is being recorded in heaven about it even now. I wonder what God is up to in this scary, smelly, difficult place. I'm not here to tell you why the storm has arisen. But I am suggesting that perhaps God has brought you here for a reason. You and I are living out a God story, friends. What change in perspective might he have in mind for you? What glory is he bringing to himself? What deepening is he seeking to create? What fruit might he have in mind that is far beyond your power or mine to imagine? And what evidence is there that the process of deliverance has already begun, even if that fish hasn't spit you out on the beach yet? Jonah's prayer of praise about how God met him in his darkest hour as he sank in the depths of the sea, uh, he comes to verse 8 and he recognizes something really important. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I think that means that he is starting to recognize that he did not earn the mercy that was being shown to him. There is nothing in him or that he has done that made God turn around and say, Oh, that Jonah, he's such a good prophet. He's a hard worker. I'm thinking I'm going to prepare a special fish to make sure he doesn't drown in that storm I cooked up. He's just beginning to understand grace on a deeper level than he ever has, friends. His deliverance had nothing to do with his goodness or his righteousness or his effectiveness or his kindness or his spiritual depth. It was all grace, completely undeserved favor. But you know what? There's something else here. You know, when we start talking about grace, many Christians start to get warm and fuzzy and we start humming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> because we know God has forgiven us. But I want us to just stop for a moment right here and say, Jonah doesn't get grace. He doesn't get it, friends. I say that because chapter 4 is all about his anger with God for showing grace to the Ninevites when they repent. He doesn't want God to forgive them. He doesn't want God to show his mercy to them. His grace is skin deep. It is still immature, self-centered, and superficial. Like many Christians today, it is a grace that thanks God for the mercy and forgiveness we have received, but has little grace for others. Jonah does not see the full implications and cost 
of being a recipient of grace. You see, what we, what we truly believe about God, it's seen in the way we treat others. It's seen in our fellowship, our community. You want to know why that is? Because you cannot hold a higher standard for others than you believe God holds for you. If you truly believe that God has not treated you as your sins deserve, how can you demand that other people must deserve it before they are shown mercy? Before you show them mercy? Does that make sense? So friends, when we try to seize God's place on the seat of judgment... It is a warning sign that we think somehow we must have deserved this mercy. And as soon as you start to think that there is some basis in you for deserving God's grace, trust me, it's no longer grace. It is legalism masquerading in Christian clothes. The good news is God did not choose you or me because we were just a little better than some of those other people out there. In fact, if heaven's glory is about the glory of God's grace, His undeserved favor, there is a lot to suggest that we have been chosen because we were the least deserving. Hmm. Maybe we were chosen because of our unrelenting selfishness or our superior superficiality. When we get to heaven, the multitude of angels are going to sing a song to God about me. It goes something like this. God, your grace makes us so glad because you delight to save the bad. And look what you even did with that hard-hearted Brad. Alex, maybe I'm going to leave the songwriting to you after this, okay? But Jonah is thanking God in this prayer for his mercy in saving him, but he still has a long way to go. Or maybe we should say a long way to grow. To grow in grace. And I think we need to ask ourselves, how about me? A big part of the prophetic narrative of the book of Jonah is God's stubborn determination to show grace to all who turn to him in faith and to receive the forgiveness and mercy he offers. The vicious and brutal Assyrians of Nineveh are just the kind of people God delights to save. Praise God. And the book of your life and mine it's going to reveal God's incredible grace to us and hopefully also His grace through us to others. Jonah concludes his uh, prayer with these words. He says, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah's prayer of praise in the belly of the fish concludes with a vow of obedience. 
The question that raises for me is this. What did it take to get Jonah turned around? Headed in the right direction. Did God send him another prophet to explain to him the error of his ways? Did Jonah sit in church and hear a really good sermon? I heard Pastor Brad's... Re- oh, no, never mind. Did he hear a really good sermon that made him come forward and vow to change? No. Jonah needed something more, friends. He needed a great wind and a violent storm and a sinking ship and a great fish to get his attention. You can mark this down, friends. Some people learn through instruction, but some only learn through consequences. Do you get that? Some people learn through instruction, some only learn through consequences. Pastors are often the last people to get this. We like to preach at people. You know why? Because we tend to be the kind of people who learn by instruction. We read the book, we take it in, we apply it. That's what we're supposed to do. We learn by instruction. So we tend to assume that most everybody else learns the same way. (laughs) But the book of Proverbs has a very simple classification system for humanity. Pretty much all people can be divided into two groups, the wise and the foolish. The wise aren't wise because they are smarter than the foolish, though. Do you know what distinguishes the wise and the foolish? The wise listen to instruction, but the foolish only respond to consequences. Here's a couple of verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 13.1, a wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a fool does not respond to rebuke. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke impresses a wise person more than a hundred lashes does a fool. Proverbs 19.25, flog a fool and the simple will learn prudence, but rebuke the discerning and they will gain knowledge. Friends, these verses are not teaching us to beat people. They are teaching us that wise people listen to instruction, but some people only learn through consequences. If you have any background in psychology, you know that the two of the dominant Schools of counseling psychology are cognitive counseling and behavioral counseling. Cognitive counseling seeks to bring change by instruction. Behavioral counseling seeks to bring change by consequences. And the research on their effectiveness shows that each approach only works well with certain types of people. Psychology has discovered what Solomon knew 3,000 years ago. Some people learn by instruction. Some people only learn through consequences. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that Jonah knew that he shouldn't run away? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah, I think he knew that was not a good idea. Was he lacking information? No. So if you keep telling him that he shouldn't do that, all you are doing is giving him information he already has. Barbara Colorosa, the parenting expert, says, the definition of a lecture is giving people information they already have. So, what does that mean for us? Well, I think that the kicker in this is 
that all of us are foolish at times. We're all foolish at times, friends. Have you ever done anything stupid? Me too. All of us choose to go our own way at times. All of us are Jonah at times. It may be because we are resentful or we're afraid or we're greedy or we're power hungry or we're self-righteous or lustful or a million other things. But all of us are seduced at times into thinking that we know better than God what is best for us. But there's good news. God loves both the wise and the foolish. And he knows how to get across what he wants to say, even to a guy like Jonah, even to a guy like me. I am suggesting to you that we are all living out a prophetic narrative, friends. We're all living in a God story. And God is the primary actor in this story. We may have bought a ticket to Tarshish, but God knows what is needed to get our attention and turn us around. In our wisest moments, it is the wise counsel of a friend or a spouse. It is the still small voice of the Spirit whispering instruction we need to pay attention to. Or it is the illumination of the Scriptures so that we will change course. But sometimes, in His love, the Lord sends crashing waves upon us and others who are aboard that ship we are traveling to Tarshish on. We are once again coming to the Lord's table this morning to celebrate God's incredible grace. And we see God's incredible grace in the book of Jonah, to Jonah, to the people of Nineveh, and to us. Our only qualification to come to this table, this table of mercy, is that we don't qualify. And the book of Jonah is evidence of another book being written. It is being recorded by the angelic scribes of heaven, and the book has your name in the title. But the story is not really about you. The plot is about how gracious and mighty God really is. You may be in the forefront, but the major actor in this story of your life is God. His grace and His power are being revealed by His actions in your life and in this world, many of which we don't get to see till we get to heaven. Heaven may even turn that book of your life into a summer blockbuster in eternity. But when the audience rises from their chairs to clap and cheer at the end, it will be God we are applauding. We might even elbow one another and react in the same way that we do to the book of Jonah, saying, wow, God is incredible. Can you believe he could even use that guy? So friends, let's draw near to God. 
Let's pay attention to his word and his spirit. And whatever your circumstances, ask yourself, what chapter is God writing with my life right now? And then respond to his grace with grateful obedience. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, there are times in our lives when we are foolish, when we think we know what's best for us, but we're not paying any attention to you. And yet you are intimately involved in our lives. You see what is needed. You love us, and you are at work in us and through us. So, Lord, open our eyes. Cause your grace to be grasped in new ways in our lives. And may it be reflected in a grace to others because we have experienced your complete acceptance. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.